Hello, and welcome to the Interesting Bits podcast with me, Justin Pollard. The Interesting Bits is an attempt to delve into the stories of some of history's underdogs, the forgotten majority who never became historical celebrities, but played their part nonetheless. The Interesting Bits is here to tell the stories of the mad, bad, stupid, wonderful, odd and improbable things that happened to our ancestors. They have no greater meaning, no direction, no overarching theme beyond being, I hope, worthy of note perhaps even memorable, and reminding us that the past was as daft as the present, and the people of the past were as daft as us. That's what actually links us. Hello, and welcome to episode 5 of The Interesting Bits. Today, we'll be riding off a cliff with a Scottish king and listening to the strange prognostications of the woman in the wall. But first, we dive into the dubious reasons behind the pastry wall. Every wall needs a cause to get it going. It might be a genuine threat, an invasion, or an attack on an ally, all of which seem perfectly reasonable causes. But there are also those occasions when a country would rather like to be at war with somewhere, as they have something the other country wants, or some unfinished business from the last war, but they don't really have a good reason to start one. These wars require an excuse. The most famous excuse is probably the War of Jenkins' Ear, allegedly started over the removal of an English captain's ear by an overzealous Spanish customs officer. But actually, just an excuse for diving into the much larger spat known as the War of the Austrian Succession. Then, there is the Pastry War. The origins of the war lie in the rather chaotic birth of the Mexican Republic, and in particular the ejection from office of the governor of the state of Mexico, Lorenzo de Zavala, who promptly returned with Santa Ana, of Alamo fame, and reinstated himself, expelling the president. This confusing process led to a lot of rioting in Mexico City, in which a lot of foreign property was looted or destroyed, However, with Zavala back in power, things seemed to settle down, and the situation apparently returned to normal. It was ten years later that a French pastry chef called Remontel suddenly remembered that his shop in Mexico City had been looted by Mexican soldiers in the disturbances and demanded compensation. Frankly, this claim seemed a little late and was ignored, so Remontel appealed to the King of France, Louis-Philippe, Now, it just so happened that Mexico had defaulted on some rather large loans made by France, so suspicious souls might see a connection between these events. Certainly France, which had done nothing in 1828, now suddenly demanded a staggering 600,000 pesos compensation for their national. Considering the average wage in the city was one peso a day at this point, we can only imagine how much damage Monsieur Remontel was claiming had been done to his pastry shop. Either that, or he sold very expensive pastries. The Mexicans could be forgiven for being rather taken aback at this, particularly when the French sent an ultimatum threatening to blockade the country and seize its possessions if the irate pastry chef didn't get his money. They refused to pay, however, and so the French sent a fleet, under the command of Captain Francois Bazoche, to blockade the Atlantic coast and capture the town of Veracruz, where most of the Mexican fleet was also seized. Mexico, in response, now declared war on France and recalled Santa Ana to the fray. 
Skirmishes in and around the city continued until the British intervened politically, and on March the 9th, 1839, France received a $600,000 indemnity, both nations agreed to grant the other favoured trading status, and the installations seized or destroyed by the French were restored, all except the Mexican fleet, which they managed to keep. The King Who Rode Off a Cliff Alexander III's rule over Scotland was marred by personal tragedy. By 1283, the King had lost his first wife and outlived all of his children. According to the Chronicle of Lanacost, he was not too bothered by the loneliness, however, as he used never to forbear on account of season nor storm, nor for perils of flood or rocky cliffs, but he would visit none too creditably nuns or matrons, virgins or widows, as the fancy seized him, sometimes in disguise. All of which was great fun, but he did need an heir, and so on the 14th of October, 1285, he married the French heiress Yolande de Dreux. All looked to be going well, and aged only 44, there still appeared to be the time to produce a successor. The following year, that all changed. According to the Chronicle of Lanacost once again, around March the 19th, 1286, Alexander finished a large dinner in Edinburgh and, despite the gathering gloom and the pleas of his nobles, decided to visit his new bride, Yolanda, who was a short distance away in Kinghorn. Having crossed the Queen Ferry, he arrived at the Burr of Eva Keething in profound darkness accompanied only by three esquires. The manager of his salt pans, a married man of that town, recognising him by his voice, called out, "'My lord, what are you doing here in such a storm and such darkness?' Often I have tried to persuade you that your nocturnal rambles will bring you no good. Stay with us and we will provide you with decent fare and all that you want till morning light. No need for that, said the other with a laugh, but provide me with a couple of bondmen to go afoot as guides to the way. This was a mistake. The party continued, but just two miles down the road, now in complete darkness, they lost their way and Alexander, in his eagerness to reach the nuptial bed, rode straight off a cliff. The bodies of horse and rider were recovered the next morning. Without a surviving heir, Scotland would now be without a king for six years. The Woman in the Wall During the short and bloody reign of Mary Tudor, in which time Catholicism was re-established as the official religion of England, it might certainly have been said that walls had ears. But in one exceptional case in London, for a while, they could also speak. On the 14th of March, 1554, people began gathering outside a house on Aldersgate Street in London. What drew them there was the news, then racing around the city, that an invisible angel had begun talking from the wall and was soon dubbed the Spirit in the Wall. This was extraordinary enough, but what made it all the more sensational was what the Spirit was saying. In an era when Protestants were being burned to death at the stake for their faith, the voice in the wall in this reformist part of town was uttering unspeakable heresies. It threatened terrible calamities if Queen Mary married Philip of Spain, 
or gave the Pope any further jurisdiction in the country, and railed against Catholic rituals such as the Mass and Confession. Its darker utterances were interpreted to the crowd by two clerks, who moved among the entranced throng, ensuring they hung on every word of what was now said to be an angel. By the second morning, the crowd had reached 17,000 people by some accounts, all attracted by this boldly anti-Catholic spirit. Some in the crowd hazarded to shout, God save the Lady Elizabeth, in reference to Mary's Protestant sister, later Elizabeth I. In reply, the spirit in the wall said, So be it, suggesting it supported whatever move might be afoot to replace Mary. Eventually, the Lord Mayor was dragged into the issue and charged with discovering what was causing all this trouble. Being of a practical bent, he arranged for the wall to be knocked down, upon which it was discovered that it was actually a false wall with another behind it, and there, in the gap, bedusted and bewildered, was the wretched form of Elizabeth Crofts, an 18-year-old serving maid. Elizabeth was arrested and admitted to the fraud. She had been approached by a man called Drake, probably a servant of one of the Protestant nobility, and persuaded to shout anti-Marian propaganda from her hiding place. After questioning, during which the terrified girl also denounced the clerks who had interpreted her utterances for the crowd, she was taken to St Paul's Cross on the 15th of July to atone for her sins. Here, on the scaffold used by preachers, she confessed to having offended God and the Queen. Just who put Elizabeth up to this elaborate scheme was never uncovered. It has been suggested both that it was part of a serious plot to remove Mary from the throne and that it was a simple hoax that got out of hand. Either way, the authorities chose not to be overly harsh with the spirit in the wall. Elizabeth Crofts finished her penance at St Paul's and was returned to prison, but very shortly after released. She was never heard from again. That was The Interesting Bits, written and presented by Justin Pollard, with music by Constance Pollard. The show was produced by Tian Stewart-Murray.